Hi, this is Pastor Jake from Harvest Community Church. We meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. at 18511 East Hampton Avenue, Suite 204. We're located in the Movie Tavern Shopping Center next to the State Farm. You can check us out online at Facebook or on our webpage at harvestcolorado.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. We're in Mark chapter uh, 10 today, verse 35 through 45. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them. And while you do, let me pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the challenge of it. And thank you that you really spoke these words to real people. And I pray, Father, that we would tap into the sense of the reality of these words, that we not just be words on a page, but they would be your words to us this morning. Amen. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And he said to them, uh, they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup which I drank and baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those with whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, you know, uh, that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's funny what you write down, uh, what you think you're going to start out your sermon with. I thought about, you know, trying to say something extremely profound. But what I thought about just now, I think, is even more apropos. Um, Our kids, and if you're a parent with children, uh, even adult children, you've probably heard them uh, ask for stuff. And usually at the most inappropriate time as well. Dad, I I, I have this project that's due tomorrow. Can you help me figure out how to light a, a light bulb with a battery and some Christmas wire? Well, you don't know what you're asking for. <laughs> Didn't you prepare? We've had our children ask us all sorts of questions. And I've, I laugh at this story a little bit because here you have James and John who in the scriptures are called the sons of thunder, mostly because they are blustery. And they're loud and they say things that are completely, well, uh, unkind. There's even a, a, a story where they actually say, hey, Jesus, we see these guys are bothering you. You want us to call down thunder on them? I mean, they were like, hey, we'll burn them up. You just give us the power. We'll just be like, pow, you know, yeah. These are, these are kind of just, you know, people like this. And another story there is, and the parallel story to this, it's actually James and John's mom that comes up and says, hey, listen, can you do something for my sons? Do something really, really cool. But they asked Jesus this really bizarre question. It's as if they pulled, they're all eating and, and chilling out with Jesus uh, near the end of his uh, last or near uh, the time when he enters into Jerusalem. And they're like, hey, listen, we want you to do something for us. Okay. Me and my brother here, we were thinking about what it is we want you to do. Here it is. Are you ready? And Jesus being graceful is like, well, what do you want me to do for you? Half wondering, what is it? 
And James maybe looks at John, and John looks at James and goes, all right, here's the deal. We want you to make us like second in command. All right, we want to sit at your left and your right. We want to be like the most important people in your kingdom. We want to be your vice presidents because we think we know how to handle this thing. Peter apparently blew it last week, so uh, we're going to leave him on the side. Me and James and John, we're the stuff. We know how to run this thing. So you don't have to do much. You can just sit up in your glory and me and James and John, we're just going to rule. We want to be first. We want to be prominent. We want to be the guys in charge. We want to be people who walk around and go, man, that kingdom of God, don't cross them because James and John are up there and they'll call down thunder. They'll do it. They'll blow you up. Why? It occurred to me, it, it occurred to me that human beings tend to seek power and prominence and validation in order to preserve themselves. They want to maintain their worth. They want to feel important. And maybe James and John felt this way. I'm not sure. But Jesus' response to us should challenge us today. He simply says, listen, are you going to be able to do what I do? Are you going to be able to suffer what I suffer? Are you going to be able to die like I will die? And they, being heroic and everything and, and blustering, they're like, yeah, we're able. We're totally in, Jesus. We're down with this. We can do this. Jesus is like, yeah, you're right. Later on, Without your uh, uh, consent, you will suffer like me and you will die like me. But this prominence thing and this importance thing, that's not for me to decide. And then he noticed that the disciples are getting indignant. It just means a nice word for offended. I mean, they were just getting irritated. Like, oh, here they go again. Not again. Last time they were calling down thunder from people, and now they're asking Jesus to be the most important people. There's this uprising that occurs inside of this group. They're like, oh, God, would they just shut up? Do you know people like this that just say stuff and it just comes out of their mouth and you just go, oh, uh, yeah, I know. There are people in here who know that's true about me at times. I tend to say things that are just outrageous and outlandish. But in the end, what are they really after and why? Jesus tells, something, tells us something profound about his kingdom and his rule. He tells us something amazing about ourselves and about him and what it means to be a kingdom follower and what that really looks like. Because in, our, in the United States, we tend to elevate prominence and power. We tend to elevate those who seek validation and those who want the best and to be the first. Even in church. Bigger is better. How many people come to your church? As if it's an artificial sort of way of saying, well, there you must be powerful. You must have got the thing. Your prestige is amazing. But Jesus tells us something amazing about what greatness looks like in God's eyes. And in God's kingdom, greatness looks like dying. Greatness looks like dying. See, James and John were just like you and me in a sense. They want to be prominent in God's kingdom. They want to have validation. They want to feel important. They want to have a place. I love their pride that they display here. We are able. It's the self-confidence that bases the, their ability on their own strengths. It says, yes, we're blustery and loud and obnoxious. And yes, in your kingdom, we can suffer and die just like you. We're in. We're strong. 
And to us on this side of heaven, it looks like courage. It looks like heroism. It looks like, yeah, I want to follow that guy. But it's really just pride. But to them, it also, the idea of what uh, God's kingdom looks like and being first and second in command, it looks like dominance. See, the left and the right for James and John means it's a symbol of being second in command, like I said earlier, of importance and power. It means to sit on the throne and be able to dictate what happens and to actually cause things to happen. It, it means to subjugate people through dominant and, and powerful acts of, uh, 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 oh, I guess, word dominance. It means to have authority. There's that old line from the, start, from the Spider-Man movie that says, with great power comes great responsibility. But in, in this idea that James and John are asking, authority means with great power comes the ability to boss people around. You can't just be dominant and be overwhelming and super powerful without having the ability to put your thumb down on people and make them do what you want them to do. To have authority means to say, I'm the captain now. You do as I do. It's an exercise of power through forcing others to act as you want them to. Why would you want that? Why would Peter, why would James and John ask for that? Of all things to ask Jesus for. Maybe they felt powerless in their cultural context. Maybe it's possible that, that they've been under Roman rule for so long that they've built up a, a, an anger and a, a disdain for the Roman authority and rule and dominance. And maybe... They thought that if I hitch my wagon to Jesus and his kingdom is coming, well, maybe I'll be in a seat of power so that I don't have to be under their rule anymore. Maybe in powerlessness, they, they said, well, man, power is what I want. Maybe Jesus's words of rule and reign of, the, uh, of God inspired them to want to get in on the ground floor. You know, they always say early adopters get all the perks, right? I mean, if you had been uh, around in the 1900s, early 1900s, and put your stocks into Coca-Cola, you'd be a rich person by now. I mean, extremely rich. You get on the ground floor, and maybe that's what they wanted. Maybe they said, hmm, this Jesus, he's got something going on. If I get in on the, uh, on the early adopters of, of this whole Jesus movement thing, I'll have power and prestige and, and, and validation and authority. Maybe that's what they wanted. See, nobody else had jumped up and said, well, I want to be that, so we're going to be the first. The rest of the 10 has just been sitting around going, well, I don't, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? And James John like, well, we're motivated dudes. We're wild and crazy guys. We want to get after this thing. Maybe. But maybe they were just like Peter. As we explored last week, Peter was trying to save his own life. Peter was about himself. And maybe they were just like him. If we can become powerful and prominent in Jesus' kingdom, we can save our own lives. We hitch our wagon to who's most powerful in this, in this context. We'll get out of this okay. I don't know. It could be any one of those things. But in their mind, greatness exercises power to save its own life. For them, they wanted to be, have dominance and authority and pride because it's a way of saving themselves. But Jesus says something really countercultural here, not only in their context, but in ours. He says... His way of greatness looks like dying. His way looks like dying. It's humility, it's service, and it's sacrifice. Look with me what I mean by that. When he says humility, notice how Jesus handles this conversation. Last week we saw how he called uh, Peter Satan. 
which is a pretty bold thing to say to somebody. It's pretty insulting. And it's, it was meant to snap him out of whatever it was he, he was doing, the obstacle he had become. But in this instance, Jesus handles himself quite humbly in front of the disciples. He doesn't exercise his power. He doesn't call them names. He doesn't call them out to shame them, but rather he invites them into a conversation so that they begin to see what, uh, uh, what real greatness looks like. Jesus handles himself with great humility. See, Jesus knows who he is and he doesn't need to exercise his power in order to get the respect that he deserves or praise. See, Jesus is completely secure in his relationship with God. Humility never seeks its own. He doesn't seek validation. So Jesus himself makes himself nothing because he knows he already has everything. He's humble. Jesus doesn't call him out. But then he goes on to say the following two really radical things. That in God's kingdom, greatness looks like service. See, the way of Jesus is the way of service to others. See, where dominance says, what can you do for me? Or what will you do for me? Because I'm in control. Service asks, what can I do for you? In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, he goes on to, uh, to describe Jesus and saying that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. Greatness in God's kingdom looks like Jesus doing good. Jesus took the power that was his, the power that was with him from the, from, the, from the dawn of all things because he was before all things. The one who called the universe into existence. This great power in humanity, in one person who had the ability to do whatever he wanted said, I will serve. Greatness looks like dying. And service simply is a way to say, what can I do for you? Me to you. And then he says, sacrifice. Not only is it humility in God's kingdom that, that demonstrates God's power, it is not only service, but it is sacrifice. So the way of Jesus is the way of giving your life for the sake of another. Jesus goes on to say here, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus gives his life as a ransom, his life given for our freedom for the, from the punishment of sin and of death. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. James and John wanted prominence and power. Jesus says, my kingdom is all about humility, service, and sacrifice. Why is it that way? Simply put, it's that way because this is the path that Jesus walked while he was here on this planet. In Philippians 2, 5, and 8 says, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that every knee, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under, earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, greatness in God's coming kingdom is achieved through humility, sacrifice, 
and service. Simply put, people who are in God's kingdom use the power of God to save others, to give life. So what does it mean for you and I? A few things. Number one, I think it means that a disciple of Jesus should live in the same manner that Jesus did. Should live like Jesus did. We're not to go out and smash people. We're not to go out and exercise dominance on another culture. We're not to go out and exercise our authority in Christ over another person and put them under our rule and reign with our thumbs down on their heads and on their, and their feet on their necks. No, Jesus is telling us here that we ought to develop humility. We ought to live humbly. In Micah, it says, what does God require of a man but to do justly? And walk humbly with your God. We are to develop humility. We are to be a people of humility, of humbleness. And that's only achieved when we see the tension between our real present selves and who we really are when we're not here at church. Who we are in the workplace. Who we are with our kids and our spouses. That inside of us that wrestles with um, uh, not doing what we want to do, but doing what we don't want to do. All the time there's this sinful self and nature that we struggle with. It's that tension between who we are and who God sees us through Jesus. There's this tension that says there is grace and there is my sin. And yet in the middle is the cross that holds it all together. Humility is simply confidence that is grounded in the grace of Christ towards sinners. It is not looking at other people and seeing their sin, but also looking at them and saying there, but by the grace of God go I. Humility is marked by quietness, a peace of soul, the ability to rest in times of turmoil and and hiddenness in God and obscurity because we don't need all that stuff. We don't need what James and John are asking for. They're asking for power and prominence and, and validation. We don't need that because in Christ we have everything already. See, when we are fully known by God, we can live without striving for prominence and validation and importance. We have been saved by the one being in the entire universe who can give us the exact worth we truly need. Not only humility, but to be a person uh, that follows Christ is one who looks for opportunities to serve. When we go to our workplaces tomorrow... We ought not to go in saying, who can I dominate, but who can I serve? The way of Jesus is the way of service, not only to the people we like, but especially to the people that we don't like. Not only to the people that like us, but the ones that don't like us. And often it's not just our neighbor, but it's our enemy, because often those two are the same thing. We are to look for opportunities to serve. We should be willing to give all that we are for the sake of another because Jesus gave all that he is for the sake of us. Humility, service, and sacrifice are the markers of a disciple of Christ because they point to Jesus. We do for him because he has already done for us. And as we do like he did, it doesn't look on us. It points and reflects back to him in the same way the moon reflects the sun. It is not the moon's own light that we look at, but it is the sun reflecting off the moon. Say there is light. When they look at us, hopefully they'll see someone who's humble, somebody who serves and somebody who sacrifices. And when they say, why you say simply 
because he suffered for me. He was humble. He served me. He sacrificed for me. And therefore, I do the same. But to be honest, living like this sounds great in here. But out there, it feels like death. It feels like death to ourselves. And let's be honest. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, deny yourself. That's not something we're often really comfortable with. Because naturally, we're all about trying to save ourselves and preserve our lives by doing what we normally do. And when we do this thing, when we deny ourselves for the good of another, it feels like death. It feels like part of me is dying. And that fight to hold on to ourselves is a struggle. We ask questions like, how will I make it if I don't take care of me? How will I handle myself when I go to my job and my, somebody who's equally uh, uh, capable as me uh, but is another gender will get ahead of me? Do I exercise a power and authority and dominance over them in order to step on them so that I can get ahead? No. Jesus has said, you serve them. You seek the good in another. When we do life like this, when we live like we're dying, in a sense, it becomes a visible act of trust in the goodness and provision of God. It says, I trust you more than I trust me. And when we leave the old life for the new, yeah, it will feel a little bit like dying. But even Jesus's death opened up the doors for resurrection. So as I die to myself, I live in such a way that says this life is not the end. What I'm walking towards, that's what I'm after. Not the petty stuff here in this life, but what lies beyond. That's what I'm after. But it will also feel like and look like dying to others. When our humility and service and sacrifice are really lived out on a day-to-day basis, it will look like death, senseless and purposeless to those around us. They will look at us like, what are you doing? You had that job in the bag. Why didn't you, why didn't you reach for the brass ring? Why didn't you go after that thing? Why did you let that other person take it? It looked like dying to them. It'll look weird. People looked at Jesus when he was dying on the cross and said, if he's really the son of God, why doesn't he get himself down? Those of us that walk in humbleness and in service and sacrifice to our fellow human being, it will not make sense to them. The dying life will always remind us or remind others of Jesus. That is the purpose of the life that we live. That is the reason we pick up our cross and follow him even unto death because it points to Jesus. Lastly, I think that Jesus' life points us to a far better future, a resurrected world that operates in the way that Jesus actually lived, a life of real life. You see, Jesus always points to not just his death and his his suffering and his dying, but also to his resurrection. And he points to the coming resurrected world, which will be a place which is defined by humility and service and sacrifice to others. Listen, when, when the time comes and Jesus remakes this whole thing and we are living in perfect peace and harmony with each other, we will still be humble. We will still seek the good in others. We will still serve them and sacrifice and give what we can to them because that is the Jesus way. And that will always be the way. And the life in a world is coming that will look like that. That is what we hope for. 
And in the end, what we give up here to follow Jesus will be given back to us. Jesus said so. But it's delayed gratification. And it's not just for us to enjoy, but also to repeat the cycle of humility, service, and sacrifice for each other in a wholly new reality. See, our work here for others is in preparation for the life to come. We model here amongst ourselves and in our workplaces and our families what is coming. We are the evidence of the resurrected life on the way. So what do we do with this story? Simply put, as Jesus was humble, we need to develop our own humility. And that's hard. That's, that's really hard. Let me be honest. It's really hard to develop humility. Because there's that one point that wants to say, well, I'm just going to go get me a, a, a whip and hit myself all the time when I have bad thoughts. Oh, look at me. I'm so humble. And, and you know, uh, it, inquire, it requires us to understand what real humility is. And simply put, it's just a tension between who you really are and who God sees you. A sinner saved by grace. A prodigal who's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. But at the same way, we are also like the wedding guests who come to the door ready to go into it. But we have to put on something different in order for us to be part of the party. Prodigals and wedding guests covered in clothes that makes us look like we belong. Humility is simply quiet confidence in the love of God towards me. It's simply knowing who I am in Christ and not lording it over somebody else. It's a car. It's a, a, we develop a quietness of spirit. It's an attitude of sufficiency grounded in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Simply put, I know who I am in Jesus, so I don't need to pursue prominence or validation or importance. So let's develop that. Let's make that something we do the next. As Lent was a preparation for Easter, let this after Easter time be a time where we prepare, where we develop our own humility. And humility properly lived out is a life of service. See, you and I all have time, talent, and treasure for, to offer those who are in need. And the opportunities are boundless, small and large. They're not just, oh, I'm going to go serve on a mission trip. But it is also picking up the mail for a friend at, who's on vacation. Husbands and wives, we, <laughs> ask your spouse what you can do to make their day better. There's a simple act of service. Pick up your socks, guys. Sorry, it just happens. And then do it. Rinse and repeat. Service becomes part of the fabric of what a believer in Christ is. Kids, pay attention. Not just to the words your parents are saying, but if you see a need, meet it. Do it. And don't ask anything for it. The rest of us, how can I help you? How can I be a blessing in your life? How can I be like Jesus to you today? We serve because Christ first served us. We do because he already did. And then lastly, prepare to sacrifice. Now, admittedly, this one's a little challenging. I think it's more challenging to learn how to be humble and learn how to, to serve. Because we can do those things, I think, on our own and in ourselves and in ambiguity. But the, when we're called to sacrifice, it involves laying down your own wants, your own desires for the good and uplifting of another person. And it will always look different for everyone, because we don't know who the people you run into and what they're asking for. But it always involves giving of yourself to another. Sacrifice is the ultimate embodiment of loving your neighbor as yourself. 
It simply says in action, I can give to you anything and not expect something in return because in Christ, I have everything. And in our giving, which looks like dying, we are demonstrating the great mystery of God's own love for us. That Christ has died and Christ has risen. Christ will come again. So in the next few minutes, what I would like to ask you in terms of our church. Where are the people that we need to serve at? Something I was having a conversation with a good friend, Kevin, on the way home from a, uh, a meeting of some other pastors on Thursday. He was saying to me, uh, and I think accurately, that the next wave of revival in the church will come because the church chooses to serve the disaffected in their culture, or in their community. And so my question to you, because you live in the community, who are the people that we can be serving and sacrificing for? You may not know right at the moment, but my, my encouragement to you is that this week, pay attention. Look around your neighborhood, look around your work, look around this building. Who are the people that need us? It could be a subsection of society. It could be homeless teens that live in people's garages, which I've heard about. It could be uh, young minorities who don't have a place to, uh, uh, to learn uh, new skills it could be a whole charity that already does stuff that we can partner with. I want you as your homework this week and the next following weeks to look around and then come back and tell me what, where we need to serve. Because I'll put this church right focused like a laser on that and we'll get after it. So my question is, where do you want to serve? Where do you want to sacrifice? Where can we walk humbly in the service of others like Jesus did here? Because that's the marker of a disciple.